Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Tuesday, the Tuesday after Tisha and I'm going to do uh, somebody a slight bit different today. Uh, but before anything, I want to say that this um, podcast also is being sponsored by uh, my friends Leventhal family, Dr. Ed Leventhal and his wife. And uh, his wife, Messa, just had a knee replacement yesterday. So we wish her a foolish lame And all the PT should go well. My wife had it. And um, everything should go good. Uh, Ed Leventhal is uh, sponsoring a... A, a number, a few of these talks, it makes my life a little bit easier. So we're grateful. And without any further ado, uh, we <laughs> invite everyone else to imitate him. Without any uh, further ado, I'm going to uh, get to the body of my remarks. Uh, I, I saw a bunch of names were thrown at me whose yards it was, and nothing really clicked with me until I saw somebody unusual, Dr. Deichlander, who was not a rabbi. I think everybody I've done so far must be famous rabbis, I think, right? wasn't necessarily exactly my intention, but I think when I say rabbis, I mean, you know, people smicha, like you imagine Rabbonim. Somebody asked me the other day something about the Mogan Avram, a relative of his, and I pointed out the Mogan Avram was not a roof. You understand? A lot of people, now, his safer came out and made him world famous. Uh, He was a high school uh, rebbe as we would call today, a small yeshiva katana. The person I'm going to talk about today was Dr. Leo Deutschlander. He's not so well known. Maybe he is. Uh, was also a mechanic, which is interesting. I'm really spoken about people of that type. And when I say mechanic, I don't mean the way we use the term very loosely today. Anybody's a rebbe, you say he's a chinuch. <laughs> right? He could be the first grade teacher, he's a chinuch. And it's true, you know, a second grade teacher and a 12th grade teacher, you know, Rebbe is a mechanic, no question about it, or principal. I mean mechanic in the, in, in, in the bigger picture, in the higher aspect. Anyway, um, so I, when I looked at the names, and then I saw Deutschlander, I said, you know, do something a little different. Here is a story of somebody, you may have heard of him in connection with Sarah Schneer, but it's a much uh, bigger life, interesting life, and just that. Well, that's interesting too. But is a person. Some some uh, people have bad stars, a bad muzzle, a, a tough personal life. You know what I'm saying? Some people have difficult lives, sad lives. Uh, it's just the way it is. And uh, he's, he's, this is one of them. It's uh, just interesting on a human being level. Uh, so who am I talking about? Dr. Leo Deutschlander, Schmoll Deutschlander, with the Yaki. And here we're taking him back, who, who born in 1879. So in other words, here we're going back to somebody who grew up in one world and then had to function in the second world. The German Jews, it's up to World War I and after. Obviously, Hitler is a separate Tkufa, of course. But let's put Hitler aside. So before the First World War and after. And the German-Jewish story is very interesting in both regards. When I say before the First World War, I have in mind specifically the golden years, if I can use this, of German Jewry and even German Orthodoxy. And um, that's the Kaiser's time. Uh, this is a world of the Yekis that you are familiar with, which really didn't exist until 1860s and 70s. <laughs> your, your image out there of what the Yekis, quote-unquote, are, is, is actually a modern construction. Um, the way the German Jews crystallized in the modern era, including the Orthodox, Happened as you know in the 19th century. Before that, there wasn't really much of a difference in fundamentals between a Jew in, in South Germany, for example, or East Germany, and a Jew in Lithuania or someplace like that. Uh, this is a whole big schmooze, so I'll leave it aside. Now, um, our hero was uh, born different in the middle of all this. If you're interested in this period, maybe I've mentioned before, I'll mention it again. There's a wonderful book, really a wonderful book called Modernity Within Tradition. I recommend it to everybody. It's the social history 
of Orthodox Jewry in Imperial Germany by Professor Breuer, Mordechai Breuer. Now he's a Breuer, you know. Uh, I, think he, I think he was the son of Yitzhak Breuer, maybe. Uh, and he was a historian in Israel. And he's a Yaki. In other words, he writes about this. He doesn't need to look up footnotes. He lived it, you know. And it's really, a, a, truly a very wonderful book. I really recommend it very highly. Anyhow, this is a world of yesterday which no longer exists. When the Jews in Germany, especially the Orthodox, I'm talking about pretty much our middle class, and uh, developed their own particular style. I'm going to get into that right now. Our hero was born smack in the middle of this, in 1879. And that means that for somebody, he didn't live long. He died in his 50s. So, uh, from TB, which he had all his life. Uh, that's what I mean by tough life. Uh, if he was 56, so it means... The first uh, 30, 40 years, not even, 35 years, something like that of his life was one thing. And then the next 20 years or so was another thing. So the first 35 years was the good years of the Jews of Germany. Uh, by the time you get to 1870, the Germans in the German Empire, which was just forming at that time under Bismarck, had reluctantly, perhaps, but nevertheless, uh, solidly, granted the Jews complete and total civil rights. I wouldn't say there was an absence of anti-Semitism, but officially there was. You understand? Jews had complete and total civil rights, and, uh, and then they used it. And the German Jews rose many times to positions of influence and economic power and things like that. Just to give you one example, they set up the General Electric as a Jewish operation in Germany. Just one. The petrochemical industry and other things like that. This is the Bismarck years. The, the Kaiser Wilhelm I and Kaiser Wilhelm II. Now, what about the Frum? But I spoke about Rob Hildesheimer the, the other day. He was a key player in the Frum story because he showed up in Germany, came back from Hungary. Mamish at the very beginning of this period, around 1870, a bit before, and the Hildesheimer Seminary, which sought to really and genuinely combine Torum Derechai's Torum Mata, genuinely, in a Frum way, that is the story of Imperial Germany. Now, that means, and I think I mentioned it a couple weeks ago, that if you want to get down to uh, details, to some degree, the German Jewry followed you know, two axes. Uh, Frankfurt, that's one, and Berlin is the other. Frankfurt is a Hirsch, you know, obviously. And the way that all developed, and the Breuers. That's a certain Mahalach. And uh, then there was a different one. They're all from, but it's a different one. That's from Hildesheimer and the Berlin way of doing Orthodox Judaism, which was, shall I say, a little bit more open, perhaps, that's a very complicated, I can't go into great detail. But let's let's put it this way. There was a distinct Matthias outside of the Hirschian stuff in Berlin, associated with Ralph Hildesheimer and his colleagues and the people he attracted and his charisma. And even after he died in about 1899, he had W. C. Hoffman and people and, and then, you know, they built up a whole killer of I think two thousand families, which is not tiny, right? And uh, they had a separate killer like in Frankfurt, Austritzgemeinde. You know, with their own uh, mikvah, obviously, and their own synagogues, their own school system, and so on and so forth, right? Now, Kashrus, of course, the only difference is that Hildesheimer and his successors didn't strive to have uh, bitter relations with the non-from. Uh, they were very clear that they're from, and, you know, they're not connected with anything that's unfrom. But having made that statement, they tried to have good social relations, shall we, we say over here, in, in interesting ways. Okay, now... Uh, our hero was born in Hungary, in Oberland. The German Jews, especially under the modern Orthodox system, they involved in Germany, most people are not going to become big Tamir Chachamim. He's going to go into business, uh, possibly by the time we're talking about late 19th century professions. They'll be Shomer Torah Mitzvahs, for sure. For sure. They'll have their shear, you know, once a week, twice a week, whatever it is. Uh, but to, in order to staff the institutions, they used to usually bring in people from the outside. In the 1800s, they brought in Hungarians. In the 1900s, they brought in Litvaks. Which is interesting, that's how it was. Because Hungary is the, is the country next door, and Hungary was semi-modern. And in the Oberland, which is the non-Hasidic part, you had people with enough German culture that even though they're very firm and they had yeshiva education because of Hungary, at the time I'm talking about, unlike Germany, in Hungary there were Dozens of yeshivas flourishing, right? These are basically two countries adjacent to each other. Germany and Austria. Austria is sort of, sort of German. 
adjacent to Austria is Hungary. And I'm talking about the old kingdom of Hungary that existed once upon a time, which is no longer there. It was like four or five times or more the size of Hungary today. Now, uh, that means if you're a German Jew, especially a Frum Jew, so if you really care about yeshiva stuff and all that, you might send your son for a year or two, whatever, not that far away to Hungary, in which there were dozens of yeshivas flourishing. It's not the literature she, she was, it's a separate thing. But, you know, in Unsdorf, in this place, in that place, in a semi there are a lot of uh, Hungarian Oberland non Hasidic yeshivas that were, Pressburg, of course, were doing quite well at that time. So this is interesting relationship. Now, um, our hero was born in the Oberland, and, uh, you know, from that kind of background, but as a little kid, his father died, his mother died when he was young. Told he had a hard life. When he was a little boy, you know, around the time he was born, his father moved to Berlin. He was hired by the Hildesheimer uh, community, by the Kehillo, to be like a, I think he had a small shul in Berlin, a stiebel. And in addition to that, he was the principal of the, of the what's it called, Religionsschule, of the religion school. Now here we have a tough business. Even somebody like me, I should know this stuff, but it's been ne- never been clear to me exactly uh, the nature of the Chinuch system in Berlin. I know that they had, I'm just tell you the best I know, okay? Maybe somebody knows better than me. Uh, as far as I know, I repeat, I'm talking about Berlin. I'm not talking about Frankfurt. In Frankfurt, they had a school from kindergarten to 10th grade. That's what they had in Frankfurt, okay? And after 10th grade, you graduated, and the education was not to send you to college. This is Hirsch. But the education was to prepare you at the, at, what are you, at the 10th grade, 15, 16 years old, something like that. Then you go out to the world of business, and you start at the bottom, work your way up. That's the particular mode they have there. I know in America we have K through 12. I get it. It's not exactly the only way to do it. And in Frankfurt, they had the way I just told you. Now, um, in Berlin, and that means, though, I'll say this, and this is the great uh, achievement of Hirsch, of Sensor Fall Hirsch, already in the 1850s. I mean, this is his claim to fame. He insisted and built a day school from K to high school, meaning up to 10th grade. You understand? And, uh, you know, he had his own ideas. But that means you're a kid, you go to a school which is completely Jewish. And not only that, completely Orthodox. And the holidays are kept and the mitzvahs are kept and all the rest of it. Of course, it was within a German context. And, you know, they didn't wear yarmulkes for the English studies. But it's a from school. It's a Jewish school. Okay? Let me be clear about that. For boys and for girls. One for boys, one for girls. Now, that's not what they had everywhere. And as far as I know, in Berlin, the firm couldn't put that together. Not in the 1800s. Not in the good days. What you had was there for a funny situation. You had a Cahilla with 2,000 families, which is impressive, including their share of millionaires, right? You had the rich Orthodox Jews in Berlin that get everywhere else. You have a yeshiva there in the following sense. You had the Hildesheim Rabbinical Seminary, where students came from all over the world to study to be rabbis. But that means you already have a high school degree, and you're going now for university studies. Okay? So uh, you spend five, six, seven years, whatever the exact program worked out, half Lemuni Kodesh, half Lemuni Chol, and you end up with a, with a, a smicha and a PhD. That was the Hildesheimer system. So if you're older, let's say, for example... You're 18, 19, and older. Then you can, then there, if you wish to, you can go to that school, which is there to train rabbonim, to train guys who will be rabbis, puppet rabbis. Like, that's one thing. But as far as I can tell, it's under that. What do you do for chinuch when you're younger than that if you're not going for rabbi? So, uh, Hill Designer set it up uh, that you had an elementary school. So, in other words, like in America, many places, there's a day school, let's say, for example, up to the seventh grade, eighth grade, something, something along those lines. Right? You can, that's what it is. But then there's not. For high school, as was the case in America once upon a time, for high school, you got to go to public school. There is nothing else. So instead, though, yeah, but what, what, what you and I in America would call Talmud Torah. Maybe I'm talking to a young audience, and you don't know what it was like here once upon a time. But if you went back to America 100 years ago, there weren't any high schools. You know, there was there like YU and Tarvada, something like that. That's it, you know? And so everywhere else, in the, you had Talmud Torah, which means that you had after high school, you had classes. Now, you can take that seriously, or you can take it for a joke. It's well-known in America, 
most of the Talmud Torah thing was a joke. They gave uh, Talmud Torah education, you know, in the afternoon after public school, a bad rep. But it could work. You know, see, really, even, as a matter of fact, now, with the uh, tuitions going through the roof, and uh, the coronal this business, I've heard in the last five, six, seven years, so have you, some parents are going crazy, and I do, under, I respect it, middle-class people, and it's hard to keep up all these tuitions, and the schools are pretty uh, ruthless, you know, and uh, you already hear talk of saying like this, well, uh, maybe we just have a school, like the Talmud Torah, and they'll send the kids to public school, and in the afternoon have uh, a serious Limudi Kodesh program. Not a joke, a serious Limudi Kodesh program. Now, it wouldn't work. I can tell you that from history, but I'm just telling you what they're talking about now on the, uh, what's the right word, social media, and this sort of thing. You had this in Europe. And in Berlin, they took it seriously, as seriously as they could. And so, basically, up to around Bar Mitzvah, Bas Mitzvah, there was a day school. And after that, they had to go to a public school. Or the equivalent of public education, the gymnasiums, all kinds of things like that. And your Lemuri Kodesh, you got in an afternoon program in a separate building. Uh, I remember in Breuer, in his book or somewhere, he used to have, uh, I think I mentioned this before, a Bachurim uh, minion, which means you had to go to school on Saturday. This is funny. I know it sounds weird to us. But in Europe, uh, they didn't fool around. The government insisted you're going to school, you got to go on Saturday. There's a whole shot about writing. I get it. I understand that. There's a whole shot about carrying books. But frankly, carrying books you can get around. You know, if, you, if you look beforehand, if you're careful, you can make that work out. You know, you have your books where they need to be before Shabbos. Yeah, that could be massaged. Writing was the bummer, okay? And this was a perennial problem all throughout the time that we're talking about. It. And Rabbi Hirsch and the old time used to write public letters about writing for school and Shabbos. That's all smooth by itself. But it happened. Right? It happened. And um, I'm just trying to give you a, period, a, a, a tiny slice into this world. And uh, that means, I'm talking about the from kids now in Berlin, from the from families. You had to get up real early on Saturday morning. Real early Saturday morning. You had to do what we would call today Hashkama Shachris. You know? And you daven up, uh, like they're doing in the corona period, um, Shachris and then, and then Mosef. And you skip laning. Take too long. But let's say, for example, let's say for argument's sake, you had a minion where you skipped a laning. Actually, I think some, uh, a lot of these corona minions outside the porch minions that don't have towers, I think they did that, right? They do that. So anyhow, you do all the services, the chakras and, and most of, and then you go to school, you know what I'm saying? And then school's over, two in the afternoon, something like that. And you come back for what we call Minchon Shabbos, but these students would have a separate minion, the Bahuri minion, and they would, they would do the Kriya of the day. Isn't that funny? So in other words, let's say, for example, this week is Pasha's Ekev. So you and I, for the most part, we're going to go to Shul and lay an Ekev in the morning, and then by Shabbos Mincha, we're going to do the next Pasha Re'eh. These guys, as far as I understand, they skipped the laning, the laning in the morning because they got to go to public school. They had to. And then in the afternoon... Uh, they're going to lane Akif. I don't think they're going to lane Ray. Maybe they did, you know, for to be kind to Misha. This was all done under the Pesach of Rav Hildesheimer. So, in other words, everything I just described to you was guided by the Das Torah of that time. This isn't somebody just thought it up. This was with the Das Torah of that time. And uh, this is a different world. So, our hero was orphaned at a young age. His father had been the principal of school but died young. Right? So it must have been a family thing. Uh, and uh, what shall I say? He grew up in orphanages, which is tough. And uh, it's a tough life. If he's born in 1879, so imagine all during the 1880s and even into the 1890s, this is somebody who's uh, growing up, I think it was a while in Hamburg, somebody raised him for a while, but he basically grew up in orphanages with a very smart kid. The father was a principal of the school. This was, an, like I say, an afternoon uh, Talmud Torah high school. And um, he wanted to be like his father. And so what this meant practically was that as he grew up, he didn't go for a career to be a rabbi, which is interesting. He was very from, by Teva. And 
Instead, remember, we're talking about the 1890s in Imperial Germany, went to university. Some good universities eventually got a PhD. I remember he wrote a dissertation on Goethe. Probably you don't even know who Goethe is, but it's like the German Shakespeare. Let's put it, let's, let's put it that way. The principal figure in German literature. So, uh, and naturally, being Jewish, <laughs> naturally being Jewish, he basically wrote a dissertation, Goethe and the Jews. <laughs> you know, what else he's going to talk about? That's the famous uh, joke. He really did. I think it was called Goethe and the Old Testament. Something like that. Anyway, so now he's a mensch. You have a doctorate. And uh, that's what put him in the late... This puts you around 1900, 1901, 1902, when the guy's like 20, 21, 22. And then the question becomes, what do you do with your life? Yeah. He was academically very talented. Now, if he wanted to, he could have pursued to try to get a career in college. That was very hard for a Jew in Germany to get a professor job. Very difficult. There's a lot of discrimination. There certainly was. On the other hand, if you know the Prate Pratim, it could be done. And he was very good. I want you to understand, this is a from Jew who basically did a dissertation in German literature because he's writing about Goethe. He's writing German culture, German literature. That would be a plus. And based on what I've seen in different places, he had a real shot at getting a job in the university world. There were a number, not many, there were a number of Jews, including a few from Jews, who really were able to make it in the German academic world. That's most unusual. Okay? Most of the time, you're Jewish, they, you know, they blackballed you, they had a quota and all the rest of it. But it could be done. And um, in Berlin, there was a two or three famous people like that. And um, that's not what he chose to do. Instead, it's just very interesting. He has a PhD in classic German literature. That's what it boils down to. He obviously was interested in Jewish stuff. He's a, f a very from guy. But on the other hand, he wasn't a Gemar, Gemar, Gemar guy because otherwise he would have gone to Hildesheimer Seminary and uh, gotten a, a smicha. I've seen in one or two places they said he did, but I don't believe that's correct. And, uh, and he certainly never went for the rabbi. Instead, he was interested in chinuch, in educationism. That's what I wanted to bring out. In other words, being on the front lines and teaching high school kids, I think he fell in love with the idea of, of teaching high school kids in the highest sense of the word of being of people to Yiddishkeit, because the truth of the matter is, the high school years are the most important years in a person's development. If you go to, um, let's say, a public school for elementary, you go high school to a from school, you're in the from, yeah, most of the time. On the other hand, if you go to a from elementary school and you go to a non-from high school, let's go, you won't be in there. most of the time, you know, not, not, because the formative years are the teenage years, and this is when the Roshim is made on you. Now, in Germany, when he was, how good could the education be? Dicker hours are for the Lemuri Hall, the best hours of the day are for the public school. And we're talking about when public school worked. We're talking about gymnasiums. Like we say, the elite schools. Because Jews only want to go to good schools. How much time is left over for the Yishkai stuff? You have to know how to be a charismatic teacher of the high school student in order to be able to do this. You understand? In other words, he grasped from the world he grew up in, in his own experiences, and his own uh, intellectual interests, the real essence of Chinuch, which is to turn on the kids. Right? What's it all about? It's not even about what you teach them. It's about making a kesher connection and turning on the kids uh, to want to be from after they leave school. This he, kind of, he grew up, he was a young man, he was intuited it, and he ends up uh, teaching, becoming a teacher. This is what he chooses to do. He taught in the high school where his father, where he himself had attended, and his father attended that Talmud Torah High School. No, it was the afternoon school. But he was very good at it. Now, uh, if I remember correctly, he was a Tanakh teacher or something like that. And a lot of these people, you know, like I said before, Gemar 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 wasn't for him. That's what it seems. Uh, but on the other hand, there's a lot of, especially in Germany, there's Hersheyanism, there's Tanakh, there's Halakha, there's other things like that. And um, this is what he wanted to devote his life to. Okay? And he was a charismatic teacher. And if you like it and you're good at it, it's interesting. Now, it's an interesting lifestyle because the whole teaching is in the afternoon. Uh, maybe also taught, for all I know, in the elementary school in the morning. I don't know. But he loved what he was doing. Uh, on the other hand, it's not a high-paying job at all. It's not a high-paying job at all. The reason I mean, but it's, you know, it's, it's an honorable job. Now, doing all this, he had what you would call, this was interesting to me, he had Shemush in the real world of Chinuch. 
You know what I'm saying? Not blah, 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 theories and speeches and this, that, and the other, and, you know, terms of convention. He's there with the real kids. You know, it's like somebody saying today, you know, the kids should not have cell phones. They got cell phones. You know, yeah. <laughs> Either you see them or you don't see them. You have to understand. This is what it is. Are you willing to work in that world? And what you realize, the kids have cell phones with, with everything that's implied by that. That's what I mean when I say it's in the real world. It's, uh, you know, the, the young mind, the young personality is what attracted and, 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 uh, and fascinated him. So here you have somebody who is interested in educationism, meaning the theories and the, and the structures and the curriculum, the right way of doing kinuch, what's the essence of the educational process. Now, by the way, Samson Revel Hirsch was like this as an avocation, as an avocation. One of the things he was, Rav Hirsch, one of the things he was, was not only a rabbi of Akehoa, of course he was that, right, and an orator and a writer, but he was interested in educationism, the theories of education. He writes about this a great deal. He was into Montessori, Pestalozzi, and all this stuff. So our hero had that education shtick with him, okay? Now I want to remind you, if you're living in Berlin, as he did, you know, the Talmudic Chacham are associated with the seminary and most of that stuff. Um, he's in the world of, of the front lines of Chinuch. When he is 25, it's interesting, his sister married a very unusual guy, Bieberfeld, uh, they're really unusual. These are, you know, Gekisha types that don't exist. And uh, he apparently had a big influence. Bieberfeld, uh, Edward Bieberfeld, Chaim Bieberfeld, was from. There's a whole world, if you, you know, it's hard to, to recapture. Edward Bieberfeld was a. Let me put it this way he only got married when he was 40 years old. That's where I'm going with all this. He was from uh, Breslau which is a city in eastern Germany, now it's in Poland. Breslau was a place, and his father was like a, a, a dying there or something like that, and he grew up in 18, he born in 1864, which I know doesn't mean anything to you, but these are the years of the rise of the reforming conservative. As a matter of fact, the conservative made their headquarters in Breslau. The Jewish Theological Seminary in Germany, the famous institution, was in Breslau, where Gretz was, and Scharri Frankel and the others. So the conservative was a very big hashbal, very big, and the firm were really on the defensive. And there was an Orthodox element. And by the way, the reform was also big. Uh, these are uh, famous stories of the rise of the reform movement. Abraham Geiger versus Rabbi Tikton in uh, Breslau. These are well-known tales. And uh, so when, when this uh, Bieberfeld was growing up, he's basically the only from guy in town, him and his brother, something like that. You know what I mean? No, it was even the kids in the Orthodox community weren't really from. So when you're like that, oddball out, either, either it makes you weak or it makes you strong, right? In his case, it made him strong, and he grew up being very stark, and eventually came to Berlin and uh, went to the Hildesheimer Seminary. I don't know why. He didn't finish the Hildesheimer and get his smichel until he was 30 years old. These are rather late days in life. Then he taught for a while in this religion school, and then for whatever and it was like he had a, I remember his father had a... a a show in Berlin. I, you don't need to know all these details. The The point I'm getting at is that uh, when he's 36 years old, he decided he wanted to become a doctor, an MD. And he went to medical school four years, then became a doctor, and then he got married to Deutschlander's sister. So she's also an orphan. This is just an interesting story. There's a big age difference. And age differences are really not so uncommon in Imperial Germany. That's a very important part of our story. Because the German Jews, the Orthodox Jews, imbibed a lot of the bourgeois middle class values. And uh, I'm going to say something today that a lot of listeners will nod their head either up and down or right, or right and left. But in the, um, in the from world, not the ex-world, in the classic Torah world, shall we say, Hasidic world, you get married before you're financially ready to do so. Agreed? A guy and a girl get married, they're 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, you know. Now, if you've got rich parents, that's one thing, but if you have rich parents, how's it going to work out? It'll work out. <laughs> this, this is the world we live in. Am I right or am I wrong? Okay? Uh, basically, you, the, the chas and the call jump off of Niagara Falls and they hope they'll land. You hope eventually he'll get a job in this area, in that area, or as we say, hey, we'll go to school or something like that, or the girl will go to school, and, you know, It'll be rough for a while, but then they'll, they'll land on their feet sooner or later, you hope. This would be this is a, a big violation 
of Hilchus middle class, even in America today. Tell them I'm from Jew. You know, those of you about Jews know what I'm talking about. Tell them I'm from Jew. Tell your family it's not from. Well, I'm going to yeshiva. I'm not going to get any degree in anything. I'll be 23, 24, 25. We'll marry a girl. And then we'll figure out what we're going to do. But, you know, horrified. Because it's a violation of Hilchus middle class. In middle class, and in the Gemara, I mean, the Rambam talks like this also. First you get a job, you know, then you build a house, as he said, then you get married. Right? Hey, you, you hear the part. How are you going to support a wife? Right? So, uh, if you're in Imperial Germany in the early 20th century, uh, basically, if you're a boy, you finish school, if you're like in Frankfurt in 10th grade, then you go into business, takes you a decade to, to, to start making some decent money, as we would say today, to have enough money in the bank, then now you're able to support a wife, and hopefully a family. And so people didn't get married till later, meaning after 25, 30 even, things like it wasn't uncommon at all. So the girl's like 19 or 20, and the boy's like 20 or 29, 30. This is not rare at all, not rare at all. And uh, it totally comported with the middle class values. You know what I'm saying? It's just interesting. Today in America, they're all submission one way or the other. The average girl who's 19 doesn't want to marry a guy who's 30 or, tw or 29. The average. You know? Even if you say, listen, the guy finished school now and this and that and the other one's position. Usually someone wants somebody closer in age. It happens. Everything happens. Everything happens. I'm talking about you know, Derek Claw. Now, um, the reason I mention this is Here's this Bill Bieberfeld who married his sister and was now Rabbi Dr. Bieberfeld, doctor in the sense of MD, and became a very hush of a person in the Berlin uh, community. I mean, besides being a, from, uh, a famous from physician, uh, you know, with all the legends that go along with that, he was a big Talmud Chacham because he learned with his father, in, in, not in, uh, in, in, uh, in Breslau, you know, he learned literally, not uh, German style, but Yeshiva style. He learned with his father, you know, Shas and Poskim. And so forth, and he taught in the religion school, and so I don't know all the details, but they all must have known each other socially. So here's our hero, 25 years old and not married. Now he undertakes to teach in this school, and he spends a good five, six. Well, from 19, uh, how old was he when he got his PhD in Germany? He'd be like 23, something like that. So that would put him around 1902, 1903, some of those years. So he spent a decade up to the First World War. So from the time you're in your early 20s to you're in your early 30s, as an unmarried teacher, not with a big salary, uh, it's an honorable position, but he's very, as we would say today, he's a very charismatic high school rebbe. That's how we would describe today. Uh, and he was. And uh, in Germany, in the best sense of the chinah, they went on trips on Sunday, and they, you know, they was, they was just very good. You know, the students really liked him. Now, here's the problem. And his sister is now married to a very hushful guy in the community. His sister, I imagine, was 25. I imagine, or 24, 25. The husband was now 40. That's just an interesting situation. And they immediately had five kids, and then she died. That's what happened after a decade. The human side. And, uh, but that's who our hero is. Now, um, it's, it's not surprising. Uh, well, let me put it this way. He fell in love with a girl, one of his students, and the girl fell in love with him. Which I've heard of cases like that. Uh, you understand? No, there's a, here's a guy who's 25, 28, 29, something like that. And there's a girl in the high school from the from community, from a wealthy family too, uh, who is uh, uh, from a Hushva family, and they fell for each other. I've had a friend. It's, it's a, it happens. But it's a big age difference. Now, if I was the father of the girl, I wouldn't be crazy. But also, I don't want my daughter, if she's 16, 17 years old, fall in love with a guy who's like 29, 30. On the other hand, it wasn't unheard of in Imperial Germany. Uh, and the problem is he's in the wrong class, meaning he was poor relative to the family. And in Germany, if you're a rich family, you got to marry a rich uh, husband. You know what I'm saying? And the girl, as time went on, they, their, uh, their, their love intensified, is what you're saying. You know, nothing bad happened. Everything totally honorable. He's a from guy, very from. Uh, and the girl was too. And they wanted to get married, you know, and they don't care what anybody says. And the family moved heaven and earth, and 
eventually brought charges against him and things like this. It was in court. There was a, quite a scandal, even though I repeat, nothing ever happened. And nothing unseemly ever happened. And this was a big crisis. Now, one of the problems with him is he had the TB, the tuberculosis. This before he had the penicillin, uh, which was stuff that stayed with you your whole life, eventually finished you off. And in his particular case, very sad, the TB settled in a place in his body which prevented him from having children, which, which is part of what can happen. And uh, it didn't matter. The girl wanted to marry him. He wanted to marry the girl. Now, all this reaches... So this is the story that dominates <laughs> his uh, late 20s and early 30s, as we'd say today. Matter of fact, I'm wrong. His, his early 30s, like 30 to 35. And I don't know what happened with the court case and all the rest of it. The parents prevented her from marrying the guy. Now, uh, but they wanted to they're in love anyway. And isn't this a movie? And wait a minute, it gets better. In the middle of all this, World War I breaks out. World War I was going to transform everything because eventually the Kaiser fell and Germany fell apart and then the Weimar Republic and just life was very different. Right? The Masoretic life that had been up to 1914 is different from what happens afterwards. Now, he was drafted. How old was he? Uh, 34 years old? Uh, 1909. 35 years old at the time the war breaks out. He's in the reserves. He's a PhD in German lit. And so uh, he wasn't a private first class set in the, in, in the front lines. He, uh, he had a high education and therefore they made him an officer. And eventually, before too long, they sent him to the Eastern Front, which means that in 1915, not long after the war started, the German army conquered Lithuania. That's the point I'm getting at. This is in general part of what happened in World War I. I have a whole series that I did last year, I guess, on the experience of Orthodox Jews in the First World War, particularly in the Eastern Front, a whole bunch of videos, uh, which I think might be on my new YouTube channel, uh, if you're into that. Anyway, uh, and the German army, pretty quickly, in 1915, remember the war started in now, in late July, August, September of 1914, and by uh, July, August, of 1915, the German army had driven the Russians away, and they had conquered Lithuania and Poland, central Poland, which means the German army now ruled several million Jews in Lithuania, Lithuania Belarus, Ukraine, and, uh, and Poland. And the question was what to do with them. This is a giant Parsha, which I said before that I did a series on. This is fascinating. Our hero played an important role in this, because he was sent... To, to serve in the German army occupation forces in Lithuania. Since, remember, he's got a PhD and all the rest of it. He wasn't very intellectual in the German way. On the other hand, he knows Hebrew very well. And so his job, uh, which makes sense from a personal point of view, is to translate um, German documents into Hebrew. Like if the government wants to issue a, you know, a proclamation or something like that, uh, you know, he should translate in Hebrew, and if the, the, the local Jews want to send something to the German army to discuss something, they can write it in Hebrew, and he'll translate into German. You know, that, that sort of thing. That's okay with me. Here, we, here becomes part of a very fascinating Parsha, because the German army occupying Poland and Lithuania played a seminal role in the transformations that hit Eastern European Jewry. Because the First World War was a terrible blow, even though the German army did not go against the Jews at all. This is not World War II, this is World War I. This is the Kaiser's army. But life in general was tough because you had military occupation. You had, um, you know, the, uh, what's the right word? The uh, uh, wartime conditions, scarcity of food, no malnutrition, uh, people drafted for work battalions, high taxes. The German army ran it in favor of the German army. It wasn't that great for the population themselves, even though it wasn't anti-Semitic per se. And uh, here's the point. He's an educationist. A whole long process unfolded, which is a fascinating process, where the German Jews wanted to um, use this opportunity. The German army now controls Eastern Europe. I'm going to concentrate my remarks on Lithuania because that's where he was. There's a separate story for Poland, right? So the Lithuania, which now occupied by the German army, has a large Jewish population, how should the Germans relate to them? 
Now, I can tell you right now, for various reasons, the Russians had expelled a lot of people, whatever. Jewish life collapsed under this pressure. And let's talk about specifically the area of Chinuch. So the haters fell apart. The, the whole populations were disrupted. Starvation. The Chadarim that existed beforehand fell apart. So there's no Chinuch. Now, what do you do for a younger generation? Immediately, all kind of Jewish groups, especially the Zionists and the Bundists, immediately said, we're going to set up schools uh, for the children. We'll replace the haters. What did the firm do? And they did. What did the firm do? They were uh, like deers in a headlight. The Rabbonim were barely trying to hold up with their heads above ground, you know, and, and survive. And they didn't know what to do. There come these German Jews. The Reform showed up, the Conservative and the Orthodox. The Reform particularly wanted to affect the Eastern European Jews in a Reform way. But even the German army realized that's not a great idea for the Reform. And so by the time the process is over, it's a long story, the, the German general staff hooked up with the Reform Jews in Germany who were highly Germanized and highly organized. They had something that Hirsch had set up called the Freie Vereinigung. Let's call it the German Agudas Israel. Let's, let's, let's just call it that. And they were an organization which mobilized Yaquis with um, influence and with experience in education and administration to come to Lithuania and try to help the Lithuanian Jews survive the war in a firm way. And so our hero, like a key element in this, he said, whatever was before the old cheder system and zero chinuch for girls, that's over as a result of the war. I didn't do it, the war did it. Now what? I suggest he and people like him said, we should introduce the German system into Lithuania in a totally firm way, because the German system is very firm. And we can adjust it for firm conditions. So, basically, this is the introduction of day schools into Lithuania. From day schools. For boys and for girls. It's not Beis Yaakov, as we'll see in a minute. Beis Yaakov happened in Poland. But it's its own way. And he and Rabbi Karlbach and some other people got together, and they made a lot of experiments to try to set what kind of chinuch works in Lito. Uh, where you, where the parents were also interested. You should have what, you in Amer- what we in America call English and Hebrew, or over there. By the way, it won't be English. We'll be in Lithuania, we'll be in Polish, we'll be in German. What exactly will be the content of the uh, and what's the proportion in the day? Is it a firm system in which it's rove, Kodesh, and me, Do you want a good English? you want a bad English? All these issues had to be uh, uh, worked out. And World War I was the, uh, the laboratory of experiments. He and Kronbach and the others tried to figure out, because they were living in Lithuania, what will work with this particular population to make it from schools. And they made a bunch of mistakes. But you learn from mistakes. You know what I'm saying? They set up some schools and they all went not from this, not the other. You learn from mistakes. And he had like a, a hothouse laboratory for figuring out what is the right way to go in terms of Chinuch in the new age. And basically, how do you take a Hershian type of school and transform it to fit the Lithuanian reality. This is a fascinating subject. And by the time it's over, he evolved the Yavna. Because he's the one who made the Yavna. Now many of you don't know what Yavna is. Maybe if you're in Cleveland, you have Yavna. This was the equivalent of the Beis Yaakov system for girls and the day schools for boys that grew up in Lithuania. The Deutschland is the one who made it. Uh, after all, he's an educated guy. He understands educationism. Curriculums, uh, classrooms, buildings, uh, you know what I mean, uh, the professional training, all the stuff that was unheard of in Lithuania, <laughs> right? Unheard of. He's introducing, he's a from guy, obviously, and uh, he plunges into this work, and like I said before, do you want schools for girls? Is it K through 12? Is it K through 6? What are you teaching the girls at high school? Now, for boys, do you have yeshivas? Do you have high schools? If you have high schools, what's the proportion of Lamudi Kosh, Lamudi Chol? What's the general gang? You know what I'm saying? Uh, is it Aguda? Is it Mizrahi? Because those issues were already in Lithuania in the First World War. It was pretty clear that if you try to push an Aguda anti-Mizrahi type of school system, it won't go. You see? So you have to evolve something which is from, is sort of Aguda, but you know it, it, has a, it, it also has Mizrahi elements in it. And so what developed over there was just something very fascinating. Now this takes you through 1915, 16, 17, and 18. This is what's going on in Lithuania while the rest of the world was engaged in World War I. Now, our hero was at the 
heart of the whole thing. Uh, I don't know if he ever turned back to Germany during these years. It would really be a great movie to say that the whole affair with the girl broke his heart and he stayed there away. You know, that would be a fantastic movie. But I'll tell you one thing. His work was of seminal importance. And when the war was over, uh, and there was now a new country called Lithuania, which I just did a series here in Baltimore in the videos. Um, when the war was over, so Chinuch was a giant question because Chinuch is going to affect the next door. And the Zionists had gotten their act together. And the Bundists had gotten their act together. And they immediately set up whole school systems, which were very good. One was called Tarbut, one was called the Folkshaw. All over Lita, all over Lithuania, I repeat, all over Lithuania, they had these new type of schools with non-from teachers, excellent education in, an, in a Zionist way, if that's what you're into, or in a Yiddishist way, if that's what you're into. But forget the from stuff. And even the biggest Rabbanim, who, being yeshivish, never would have been comfortable with the Murichol and this and that and the other, you know. But they realized they got to wake up and smell the coffee. And they basically turned to Deutschlander and said, you stay here in Lithuania and set up a system that the government will recognize of day schools that'll work. You know what I'm saying? No, the haters are over. The new conditions have destroyed them. And so we need what we call in America day schools. Terms are day schools. From day schools. And, from, and when it came to girls, he had to start from scratch. There's no background in Judaism teaching girls. And he did. So understand this well. He was an official of the Lithuanian government for three, four years, something like that, in the Ministry of Education. Because after all, he's a German PhD. Ministry of Education, in charge of Jewish education, specifically in charge of the firm branch, and um, working to get money and resources and teacher training programs and teacher colleges and curriculums, and this, and that, and the other, to make an entire network of schools throughout Lithuania. And that is what happened. There's no Basiak over there. Instead, you had Yavna. And from 1920 till Hitler came in 1940, Hitler and Stalin, in 1940, wherever you went in Lithuania, there's always two or three schools. Uh, and one is uh, the Yiddishist-type school, and one is the Zionist-type school, and one is the Yavna. Okay? That, is, that was the from option. So, so it's like in America, we call it Torah Masora. So in Europe, in Lithuania, it's called the Yavda. And uh, it wasn't exactly like Beis Yaakov. It's very interesting. I've spoken about this at great length. There's a, a great quote that I used from Bar Horowitz, who was the head of the Augusta Rabban in Lithuania, where he said, you know, we believe in teaching not the Frumkite and from the Frumkite to the Torah the way they do in Germany, but we want to teach the Torah and leave from the Torah to lead the Frumkite. Somewhere to that effect. Uh, and the Yavna system, especially for the women, developed into very high, educated, and Jewish, well, from females, I'm going to tell you right now. So he was played a seminal role in the development of Jewish education, the way it developed in Lithuania, boys and girls. Um, you know, the big question was, what do you do for the boys after you finish eighth grade? I mean, the Russian Shivas obviously want to put them on a Shiva track. On the other hand, a lot of parents don't want Shiva track. And second of all, do you do Agoda stuff? Do you do Mizrahi stuff? How do you teach her of cook? You know what I mean? Anyway, it was a big issue. By the way, just to be clear, the way he worked it out, and the way it unfolded, again, this is under Das Torah. The people who ran the uh, Yavna system, I know it's their Vada Chinuch, as we would call today, uh, were people like the Panavish the Telzerov, the Kovnerov, you know, Gedoli Yisrael. But these men were very... Um, flexible and practical, they realized what the situation was with Lita in the 1920s and 30s. And the same way Baron Cutler and, and people like that had to twist and bend with Dr. Kamenetsky and make the, the term so work in America in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. You know, in some places you have mixed classes, in some places not. In some places you allow this, in some places you don't. You know, it, Das Torah. Literally Das Torah. This is what evolved in Lithuania with our hero. Now watch this. In between this, he got, this is what he did for several years, but he didn't live in Lithuania. He was there for periods of time, then he came back and went to Vienna. Now, I don't understand this exactly, but it seems to me in Vienna, which is in Austria, not Germany, but it is German, <coughs> he'd probably been invited to set up some kind of a Yamna-type situation there. You understand? Because I believe he made a teacher seminary there, a from teacher seminary, because people are already realizing, even the Gedolim, 
that, you know, changes are necessary in the Chinuch. We have to provide some kind of a system of Limudah Kosh with Limudah in some fashion or another. But it has to be done in the right way, of course. It's a very delicate subject. And uh, this is the guy who's going, you know, there's somebody who's in the forefront of this because he has a PhD in German. He's an educationist. I'm sure he read up all the education magazines that come out all the time. This is a subject that interests him. And he was fascinated by young people. Now, listen to this. Here's where the movie kicks in. When he moved to Vienna, this is in 1919, so he would be 40 years old. This girl who was in love with him, he was in love with her. She ran away from home. She, she, by now, she's in her 20s. You know, she'd be on the parents' shoes. Then they came to Vienna, they got married. <laughs> so here you have, you know, a movie and a half. Right? All from, I didn't say anything wrong. You know what I mean? Nothing bad happened. But she said, I guess, let's say I'm 25, whatever. You know, this is what I want to marry. 26, I want to marry. And they did. And the parents broke off with her. It's a contest story. And as they say before, unfortunately, because of his TB, he couldn't have kids. It's a rough business. But they were happily married. And uh, he became active in, in Vienna. Now, remember, he's spending part-time in Lithuania and part-time in Vienna. It's a quite a life. What's happening in Vienna in the early 20s when he's living there and now as a newlywed? The Agoda is taking off. Remember the big Agoda convention of 1923? That's the movie you saw that they passed around recently on the YouTube, the Chabetz Chaim and all these other people. The Kenesia Agadola. Yeah, Agoda was trying to get off the ground and become a real organization. Yeah, they really succeeded, but, you know, they made a shot at it. But one big problem is Kassif Manolan. The Agoda is there to support Torah education. There were whole networks of yeshivas, uh, yeshiva katanas, similar institutions, the institutions that are typed to he's the governor. But the problem is no money. No, no money. And so uh, they set up a Karen Torah, which basically means a fundraising operation. And they put Deutschlander, our hero, in charge of it. I'm not exactly sure why, but he wasn't a rabbi, you know, he's an educationist. Obviously, they must have had in mind that with his education, even though he's a from guy, totally from guy, totally, woo, real from, you know, he carried a, a Tanakh with him all the time, said to him, you know, that sort of thing. But since he's a bucking in German literature and in Goethe and who knows what, he will be able to be a good face to the non-from world and maybe raise money among them for this subject. Because the war had ruined the from millionaires. It took a few years for them to get back on their on their feet. You know, uh, remember, Germany used to be the headquarters of the rich from Jews. And uh, I think many of you know, after the First World War, it was unbelievable inflation when the money just wasn't worth anything. That's part of the Versailles Treaty in the aftermath. And so everybody was ruined uh, economically. It took them a number of years to start to get back on their feet. Because a successful businessman, even if he starts again from scratch, you know, a little while will get back on his feet. And so... Um, Make a long story short, they made Deutschlander the head of the Karenatory. He should go around the world and try to Europe and places like that, and tries to raise money for these uh, causes. And again, you know, I seen some people say he raised hundreds of thousand dollars. That's baloney. He raised like thirty, forty thousand dollars, which was a lot of money once upon a time, but it's not a million dollars at all. And that means that he raised thirty or forty grand. And uh, then you send 100 to this yeshiva, 200 to that yeshiva, 1,000 here, 1,000 there. No one has done yet what could be a very interesting talk or article on the Kesef situation in the 1920s and 30s, which is very interesting because you can't run a place without money. And a lot of places, there was no money. And they had schools of all kinds, yeshivas, whatever. And how did they do it? How did they do it? Part of it came from the Joint Distribution Committee of the American Jews, but that was a very complex and, and complicated process. Maybe I'll talk about that some other time. All I know is he went to England, to France, to this. He didn't come to America, but he was friends with Leo Young, who, was the, who became the big rabbi in, in, in um, New York, right? Leo Young went to the Old Simon Seminary. So they knew each other from Berlin from before the war. And um, Leo Young, that, it's always interested me he had a very modern shul, correct, in Manhattan. But he was always, a, from day one, he was very big into the Beis Yaka movement and things like that because he was friends with Deutschlander. And he also had a rich shul, relatively speaking, he sent him money. So in other words, that's one of his uh, funding sources. And uh, 
he got involved in this whole Yekish enterprise of trying to raise money for the yeshivas. And in general, let me say this, in general, the 1920s showed a turn of the German Jews towards Lithuania. It's just very interesting. Uh, you didn't have in Germany, after the First World War and after the death of Dovid Hoffman in 1921, any rabbi in Germany that I know of who says, I pass in way, I don't care what anybody else thinks. They're always looking over their shoulder, what does the Lithuanians think? What does Chaim Meiser think? Or something like that. And uh, it's just very interesting. This Dr. Deutschlander I'm talking about today, he's the one who hooked up with Avramelia Kaplan, the famous one, and together they helped make the, 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 the Yavna system in Lithuania, and then he brought him to be the head of the Hildesheimer Seminary in Germany. They're just, uh, these connections are interesting. So the Litvishizing, shall I use that term, of German Orthodox Jewry uh, is a feature of the post-war world. Uh, I'll use simple language. Prior to the First World War, if you were from in Germany and you wanted more intense education, there weren't many like that, you went to Hungary. You know what I'm saying? If you were a Yaki and you wanted more than was available Chinook-wise, in Germany, you wanted something intense, you went to Hungary, you went to Pressburg, you know, one of those type of yeshivas, of which there were many and they were flourishing. After the First World War, you usually went to Lithuania, you went to Tells, uh, you know, Tzmir, Slobodkin, places like that. This is just an, an interesting phenomenon. Now, uh, uh, I mean, that's a whole schmooze by itself. So here we have somebody who's in his 40s, who has another 10 years or so to live. You know, died at 56, so you know, something like 10, 12 years. That's when he met Sarshneer. <laughs> that's when he got in the base Yaku movement. Now, here's somebody who came with a big experience, a big reputation, and when he got involved in the Agudab, and he went to Poland, and in Poland, Sarshneer had already started her operation on a nickel and dime basis. And she had the ideas, but she did not have any PhD, right? She didn't have any educationist training. He teamed up with her, and she put it in his hands, and she said, tell me what to do. And uh, he played a seminal role in the spread of the Beisiaco, which was frummer than the Yavna in the sense of frumkite. Not that the Yavna was unfrum, but the nature of it was it only appealed to a very right-wing from um, uh, constituency. After all, Poland, southern Poland, where she was, headquarters of Hasidism, there you had a population like that. And the difference between Beis Yaakov and Yavna is fascinating. I just don't have time to go into it. But he made the Beis Yaakov because he said, here's how we're going to set up the education stuff, and we'll have the curriculums, and we'll have the chavrot, uh, the workbooks, and we'll have a grading process, you know, first grade, second grade, third grade, and we'll set up a teacher's seminary, we'll have summer camps, and we will create the tashtit, the, um, what's the right word, the uh, framework, the uh, background for the uh, entire system, which the Beisiakov system spread pretty doggone fast. And so, already in the 20s and 30s, it started to spread more and more. It's had a big constituency. And, uh, yeah, again, they were fighting against the Zionist schools. They're fighting against the Yiddish schools. And who knows what other type of schools. It was a, it was a Chinuch war. But a war challenged you that brings out the best of the worst, right? In this case, I think it made them a fight real hard. And uh, the tragedy, of course, is that t- t- tuberculosis took them over. You understand? So Sarah Schneer had the cancer, and he had the tuberculosis, and they both died in 1935. Both died in 35. He could have lived another 20 years. Who knows? Holocaust, I don't know. You know, that's a speculation. But uh, uh, this is why he became famous. It's funny. All the other things I told you until now, I don't think anybody ever heard of. If you say Beisiakov, which is something kind of about in the last 12, 13 years of his life, that made him world famous. Because of all the projects I talked about, the Beisiakov was the one that took off. And it's still with us today. Beis Yaakov is an Iker constituent element, obviously, of the firm world in the 20th century and the 21st century, uh, growing all the time. And uh, therefore, his role in there is what made him famous. So I'm talking about somebody who had a difficult life. His wife perished in Auschwitz after his death. It's a, it's a, there are many sad elements of the story, romantic and sad. But on the other hand, look what he uh, accomplished. So I said before, this is somebody who, uh, and I have to finish this up because I'm running out of time. This is somebody who lived a life in the world of Chinuch and the highest sense of Chinuch. You and I are the beneficiaries of these educationists. There aren't too many. Not too many. And even today, there's some serious problems, as we all know, in the world of Chinuch out there. But we try. You know, we try. Uh, people who think in conceptual terms about what the goals should be, the frameworks, 
how to adjust it to the kids in a totally from way, in other words, in the most sensitive from way, there are not too many of them. And Dr. Leo Deutschland, Shmuel Deutschland, uh, was one. And with that, I'm almost at the end of my hour, so I will bid you good day. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.